Um, it means that in daily life, black women are constantly having to be self-aware and aware about how they speak, how they look, how they move, how how they present themselves, even in situations where righteous indignation or self-defense are necessary. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to the author of the new book, Rage Becomes Her, Saraya Chamali. And we're speaking to her, of course, about Serena Williams and everything that went down at the U.S. Open last week. Also, I've got my own choice words about all things Serena and what happened in her match against Naomi Osaka. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and Colin Kaepernick Watch. But first, let's go to Soraya Shamali and talk about her new book, Rage Becomes Her. So, Rage Becomes Her, why this book and why now? Why did you write this? I wrote it as a, an almost uh, state of the union for how women move through the stages of their lives in an, in an atmosphere that's often quite hostile and that elicits negative emotional responses that are not particularly welcome, and that affects our personal lives, our professional lives, and our politics. And so, honestly, anger became the vehicle through which to talk about those issues specifically after the election. Anger was just so palpable in the build-up to the election. Um, it continues to be today, um, and so it seems like a a good filter through which to look at the broader issues. Mm. What, what, what do you think when there are these calls for civility? And it seems like that's the way to police the anger of resistance, uh, while, of course, there are no, there's no such policing on the other side. What, what, how do you respond to that when people say that in politics the problem is not uh, that things are too... Um, but the problem is not apathy or whatnot. The problem is that things are too polarized and we need civility as a way to respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's several things. One is my, 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 I hear this and I've heard this for months now in the build up to, to just having this book release is that we don't need more rage in the world. The, you know, there's plenty, there's plenty of anger in the, in the United States. And what I find interesting about that and its relation to this notion of civility is that there's nothing I'm not saying make more anger. What we're saying is the anger is here. And if you can say that people need to be more civil, it's it's um, really my response is, well, that's nice for you. But in fact, what we're trying to say here very clearly is that we're angry about very specific things and that it's time to really stop and listen to what we're saying. And the call for civility, as you say, it often comes down to a sort of tone policing, like, oh, don't be rude, don't be, don't be um, vulgar. There's a lot that is implied about, especially for women cursing, right? Um, so I don't, I don't take a lot of store in that, especially when the incivility is so prominent, as you say, so evident on the other side. Mm. And there's this whole history, of course, of particularly policing the anger of women, and re- referring it, referring to it in ways that are uh, that, that, that diminutize the issues that they're trying to raise. 
Yeah, I mean, when you when you um, minimize women's anger, when you trivialize their mode of expression, uh, you at the same time sort of simultaneously do that to the content of what they're saying. And um, that happens it really, and I tried to cite as, as much as I could in the book, studies that show how early in life this begins, how early the mischaracterization and re-characterization of girls and women's speech and feelings um, happens. So very often people will attribute sadness to a woman who's anger, who's angry because the idea that she's angry is quite transgressive. Mm. But the, now, the idea that she's sad is not. Now, you know, this is a sports and politics podcast, yeah. so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you could connect the, the general thesis in your book with everything that happened in the response with uh, Serena Williams and the policing of her anger at the U.S. Yeah, I Open. Mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing because, you know, you had this few few minutes, really, of sort of catalytic emotion and tension that escalated and escalated. And for some people watching, the escalation was just obvious. It was evident. It was something that we're familiar with in our own lives, and, and it was maybe obviously not obvious to other people who were like, well, she's just a tennis player and men get angry all the time and they get sanctioned and more men have been sanctioned in in the sport than women um, with no reference to proportionality, but we'll ignore that for right now. But, you know, I think it's it's clear, for example, in the fact that she's been levied the largest U.S. Open fine for verbal abuse ever. I mean, she was was fined $10,000, which is kind of gobsmacking given – the very evident displays of explosive sort of and threatening and um, obscene outbursts that are in all of these compilations of men tennis players that are running around. But, you know, I think that the bigger conversation about how black women's anger is perceived and treated is the most important thing coming out of this, this episode. Can you speak more about that, please? Well, I mean, there are all of these myths and tropes about angry black women, particularly in American culture, but they extend to places like the UK and, and, and really globally. But this idea that black women are threatening and vulgar and ugly and just naturally, quote unquote, angrier than other people and hostile and defensive and the origins of that stereotype come from some pretty racist media. Uh, Amos and Andy, for example, I think had characters of men that pretended to be black women acting in these ways. And um, it means that in daily life, black women are constantly having to be self-aware and aware about how they speak, how they look, how they move, how, how they present themselves, even in situations where righteous indignation or self-defense are necessary. And that starts really early. I mean, it starts in kindergarten uh, where we see that, uh, you know, young black girls are far more likely to be expelled and suspended. And by the time they're, I think, in high school, they're five times more likely to be disciplined and expelled. And some of that just comes from the fact that as young black girls, they can never really meet the standards of sort of a, a white, fragile femininity that is the norm in, in many parts of the country. I want I want to ask you about the role of sports in general when you talk yeah. about this question of rage and 
um, and whether through you know the, your experience or your family or looking at it more um, more broadly, I mean, does sports play a role in productively challenging? I'm sorry, does sports play a role in productively channeling the, the rage of women into more socially acceptable areas, or is it something that actually allows for more expression and positive? Where, where do you see the role of sports in, in a societal context with well, rage and the yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's really vitally important. Um, what's interesting to me right now in our politics and in the, you know, as we watch Me Too play out in whatever direction it's going to play out in, is that we now have a full generation of women who grew up with Title IX, and not only themselves, but they had role models who were the leaders of Title IX, the first women who benefited from Title IX, like, you know, I think Billie Jean King is the one that, that comes to mind in tennis. But what that to me speaks to is the idea that girls grew up being allowed to physically express themselves, to understand physical strength and dominance and, it, and the role that it plays uh, in tandem with emotions, and to separate the idea of aggression from anger and use those differently and strategically. And I think that it far exceeds the parameters of a game or a sport and clearly is related to leadership. We know that sports is related to leadership in general, certainly uh, among men, but that's equally true in women. And so I, I, wish, I wish there were studies that actually looked at that, and I have not been able to find any. If you know any, let me know. But that connection, I think, is undeniable because women are – young women are much more comfortable – being openly angry or assertive often. They are, they're okay being physical about their anger and displaying it in, in ways that are sometimes difficult for, for women who've not had those sports experiences. Mm. Yeah, there's a great place, uh, the Tucker Center for Women in Sports at the University of Minnesota. If anybody would have it, it would be them. Oh, I, um, I'll take a look at that. Yeah. And now you mentioned uh, the Me Too movement. I wanted to ask you, uh, how do we prevent, a kind, and you feel the stirrings of this, um, a mammoth backlash against yes. the Me Too movement, and what role can rage play in preventing that? Um, I personally, cynically, don't think we're going to prevent that. I think that's already happening. And what is evident already is that um, while people, I think, tend to think that Me Too is about sex and sexual harassment and abuse and rape, really it's about power. And we're going to just see really, I think, what that means in the next few years. Because if you look at, for example, someone like Les Moonves and and uh, I think CBS, right, he he wasn't really asked to step down because so many women came forward and described what he did or because women that he'd worked with described his shutting down project after project after project that had a feminist orientation. He, he's been asked to leave because he more or less lied to his fellow male board members. And so that to me speaks to the power and strength of fraternal bonds, and we see that in all of these sectors. So I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to prevent it. I do think that anger plays a very 
big role in addressing the backlash and pushing back against the backlash. And in, in sports in particular, I think about what happened in U.S. gymnastics. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I write about this in the book, but I don't think I've ever seen in a courtroom, you know, I think it was in excess of 200 women finally who came and spoke so clearly and in anger about what happened to them. Usually in cases like this, each case is separate. Each woman is isolated. It's very difficult to understand the context for what they're saying happened to them. It's very difficult to understand how many times it happened. But in this case, that isolation was sort of disallowed and they were all in one place. And the collective rage of those women is what made the conclusion what it was. And I think we'll see more of that kind of organic collection, uh, uh, organic um, collective movement, as was the case in the Women's March, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the Women's March. Um, I have to ask, how do you feel like this question of rage works in the context of electoral politics? That they're concerned, there is so much... Uh, righteous anger out there. I mean, you see it reflected in every poll. You see it reflected in people's expectations for these midterm elections. Is there concern that Democrats use this rage and then bring nothing to the table? Well, I mean, I I have those concerns. Um, I'm really worried about how effective the Democrats are going to be in the next election, by which I actually probably don't mean the midterms, but the presidential election. Um, I think we're seeing some good signs for the midterms. What was really striking was that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump very successfully harnessed populist rage. And I think it's undeniable that they were able to do that more effectively as men because to be angry and to um, address that anger confirms our ideas about masculinity, whereas for women, that's a much more treacherous path. So every time someone said Hillary Clinton, no matter what you think of Hillary Clinton, it was inauthentic, it was really striking to me that authenticity is a gender card that we never really talk about in politics for men. Men can afford to be angry, which is very powerful in politics, and for a woman to do that, she really can, can mainly do it on behalf of others, but for her to do it on her own behalf or self-defense or on behalf of women as a class of people, almost always resp- the, the response to that is almost always negative um, because it violates the gender norm that anger is really the moral property of men. Mm. And I, I thank you, Crystal. Thank you so much for your time. I, I do want, I'd be really curious to know what's been the response to your book so far. Did you have, do you have enough uh, uh, anecdotal data to say how people are responding to it? I mean, does it feel cathartic for people to have a book like I, this out? What's what's your take so far? Yeah, I've been um, really pleasantly surprised by the media coverage of it, which was frankly more profuse than I anticipated or expected. Um, and it's been overwhelmingly positive, but I will say I think that's because um, it's mainly women seeing it and reading it, and we know that that's another problem because men tend not to read books by and about women. That's like a well-studied fact. But but 
I think that what I'm hearing over and over and over again, which is what I was hoping with the book, is that there, women would feel validation for their experiences and their feelings and um, then use that um, in a sort of electrifying way. And so that's all really, really great. I am waiting for this to filter maybe into spaces that are more hostile to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, very, very understood. And then just one more question for you. I ask this yes. of everybody whom I talk to yes. is um, what what uh, music do you listen to when you're writing? <laughs> so I made a Rage playlist on Spotify, mm. and um, I kept adding to it as I wrote. Because and it and it was very much for me to write this book, and um, it's really filled with so much music that I love. Because one of the strongest feelings I have about anger is how joyful it can be, which may not sound um, logical, but so much of the creative power of anger has gone into music. And um, my God, I listen to so many different artists. I'm having a a hard time naming some of them. Um, I will say that at one point um, I was playing very early on in the writing process and the election uh, a Lily Allen song that I don't know if you are familiar with Lily Allen, but can can I curse on the podcast? (laughs) Of course. I think the song is just called Fuck You. Oh, yeah. Fuck you very much. Fuck you very yeah. much, yes. And, and, and you know, I just kept seeing strange things happen and people saying out loud things that you thought you'd never hear again, and her song just kept looping in my head. But, you know, there are, there are lots of them. I should send you a list, but I had one that um, I'm trying to think of, of who it was exactly. I want to say maybe it was a Carrie Hilson song. Um, that was my second backup, but um, yeah, I mean, I I listen to lots of them. Awesome. And if you're my age or your age, I will say that I still really love Joan Armitrading, and I'm super mm-hmm. super happy that she's made new music. Um, and her music, I think, had a lot of anger, but was just so beautiful and lyrical, you know. Can you please send us your uh, rage? I will. <laughs> I will. Fantastic. Well, Sarai, thank you uh, so much for joining us here on the Other Sports Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's always really great to talk to you. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
And now I've got some choice words about what went down at the U.S. Open Women's Final between Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka. Everybody's had their take on this over the last week, of course. We have seen righteous indignation and right-wing posturing, lyrical essays against sexism and racism, alongside sexist and racist cartoons straight from the gutter. Thrumming beneath it all is a general anger from tennis fans that Osaka's triumphant moment was swallowed whole by officiating that unduly imposed itself on a marquee match. Now, tennis umpires are letting it be known that they are also outraged by the treatment of tennis umpires. In their minds, they are the wrong party, and Saturday's umpire, Carlos Ramos, is the true victim. He simply had no choice but to penalize Serena for receiving coaching signals, smashing her racket, and calling him, quote-unquote, a thief. It was that third infraction which cost her a critical game in the final set. The umpiring fraternity is thoroughly disturbed at being abandoned by the WTA Tour, said retired elite gold badge umpire Richard Ings. They are all fearful that they could be the next Ramos. They feel that no one has their back when they have to make unpopular calls. Another umpire said anonymously and ominously to the Times of London that Ramos was, quote, thrown to the wolves for simply doing his job and was not willing to be abused for it. Now there is even talk among the umps that they could boycott Serena's matches, strike, or form a union because they believe Carlos Ramos was hung out to dry by the International Tennis Federation after it took the ITF all of 48 hours to issue a statement of support. One anonymous source said to The Guardian, Umpires don't have any independent means of representation and are employed by the governing bodies. If talking to the media is not allowed and governing bodies are speaking out against them, what are umpires supposed to do? Look, to be clear, while they have every right to form a union if they so wish, we need to call this out for what it is. A reactionary exercise aimed at attacking a player for daring to speak out against the culture of double standards, sexism, and racism in how they choose to judge players. Or as sports journalist Jamel Hill tweeted, Amazing how the energy changes when it's a black woman. These umps get worked by male players all the time, but not a nary a word of a boycott. Now they want to get their Norma Ray on. Okay. One thing they could do would be to listen to what Serena Williams said in the aftermath of the match. This is what she said. I'm here fighting for women's rights and for women's equality and for all kinds of stuff. And for me to say thief and for him to take a game... It made me feel like it was a sexist remark. I mean, like, how uh, he's never took a game from a man because they said thief. <laughs> for me, it blows my mind. But I'm going to continue to fight for women. There's a glaring double standard in how men and women are judged in the world of tennis. Their words, their dress, and how their anger is policed. But even beyond that, inside women's tennis, there is yet another double standard in how black players, particularly Serena and Venus Williams, are treated, whether it's their clothes, their hair, or their reaction to officials. They have always been forced to exist under the kind of microscope that white female players have not had to endure. Despite her status as the greatest of all time and the untold eyeballs and riches she has brought to the sport, Serena still has to deal with a tennis world that treats her as if it would be so nice if she wasn't there. As the poet Claudia Rankin wrote, and this is beautiful to me, so please listen. Serena and her big sister Venus brought to mind Zora Neale Hurston's 
I feel most colored when I am thrown against a white background. Serena and Venus win sometimes. They lose sometimes. They've been booed and cheered. And through it all, and evident to all, were those people who are enraged. They are there at all. Graphite against a sharp white background. End quote. Now, tragically, this latest episode recalls the words also of W.E.B. Du Bois when describing heavyweight champion Jack Johnson. And they've rang in my head since last Saturday's finals match. Du Bois wrote about how white people didn't just hate Jack Johnson. They loved to hate him. They took joy in hating him. They were proud of their hatreds, but even then hid their anger behind various fig leaves, speaking about Johnson's personal life or the way he carried himself as the root of their resentment. As Du Bois wrote, Why this thrill of national disgust? Because Johnson is black. Of course, some pretend to object to Mr. Johnson's character, but we have yet to hear in the case of white America that marital troubles have disqualified prize fighters or ball players or even statesmen. It comes down then, after all, to this unforgivable blackness. End quote. Tennis judges don't need to be talking union or threatening to go on strike. They need to be listening and understanding that the world of tennis in 2018 is long overdue for a change. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Kenny Stills and Albert Wilson for taking that knee uh, before the opening game of the NFL season as the Miami Dolphins played against the Tennessee Titans. Afterwards, Kenny Stills was asked about Donald Trump's pressure on NFL players to end their protest, and this is what he said. I don't think that's something I really worry about. I just do what I do, and you guys make it what you guys want to make it. We started the protest two years ago now, three years ago now, and we're not going to go anywhere. It's not going to change. Activism isn't something you just kind of get involved in and then turn your back on. Once your eyes are open to some of the things that are happening, you continue to work and try and grow and create change for the rest of your life. So this is something I'm committed to forever. It's not about being the face or who gets the notoriety for it. It's just what I care about outside of work and what I spend my time doing when I'm not here working for the Dolphins. End quote. Kenny Stills is really something special, and we're going to keep monitoring not just what he's doing on the field in terms of taking a knee, but the work he's doing off the field as well, which is ample. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Sit Your Ass Down. Sit Your Ass Down. This week, it goes to that newspaper in Australia. I don't even want to say their name or the name of the cartoonist because it gives them the publicity that they want. They want those clicks, but not just to just sit your ass down, but two middle fingers straight up for the racist comic that they put out depicting Serena Williams basically as a kind of gorilla on the court. And But that wasn't the only thing disgusting about it. Um, in addition, if you look at that comic deep, you also see that they portray Naomi Osaka, who is of Haitian and Japanese descent, basically as a skinny white girl with blonde hair. And then the judge, Carlos Ramos, if you look at him, he's a dude of Portuguese descent, and they have him looking like some kind of English lord. So basically, this is the message from Australia. It's a Rupert Murdoch newspaper. That's all the publicity I'm giving it. But I will say this. They need to sit their ass down.
And now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest comings and goings with Colin Kaepernick. This week, I mean, there have just been so many reports about this, i got to mention it, that since Nike has come out with their 30th anniversary Just Do It campaign, uh, their stock is at an all-time high. Uh, normally, I don't think you can look at the stock page and treat it as if it's the standings in, in a sporting event, you know, like it's a win-loss column. But it just, just goes to show you that Nike had done their market research in advance here. Nike knew exactly what they were doing. This wasn't about altruism. This wasn't about the movement. This is about cold, hard cash, and Nike knew it. While it's satisfying that the blathering of Donald Trump about how people were going to boycott Nike and how its sales were going to drop through the floor, that none of that has come to pass. And he once again just looks like an empty gas bag. While that is certainly satisfying, we also have to be very straight up here and recognize that Nike was not doing this because they believe in the movement of Colin Kaepernick. Of course, they were doing this for the cold, hard cash. And people should listen to last week's show if you want an in-depth discussion about Nike, capitalism, and some of the choices that are made when shoe companies decide to get into the business of social uplift. Well, that's all we have for this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you to our guest, Soraya Shamali. Check out her new book, Rage Becomes Her. Thank you to everybody for listening in, especially the last week's show. If you missed it, you can always check out that and all our old shows at edgeofsportspodcast.com. In addition, please support us on Patreon. You just got to go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Drop us a review. Give the show a rating. All of that stuff makes a big, big difference. To everybody out there listening, just want to tell you to stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.